Well, thank you guys for being here this morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, My name is Kevin. I am one of the pastors here. We're glad to have you uh, this morning. Um, We started back the second week of January, uh, a study through the Gospel of John, and we are now in chapter 4. And we entitled this series, as we go through it, called Seeing Jesus, because uh, that's exactly what John wants us to do. He is attempting to help us to see Jesus for who he really is, for who he truly is, as he has revealed himself. Um, If this is your first week with us and you haven't gotten a scripture journal yet, just go ahead and raise your hand. We would love to give one of those to you. That's a free gift that we have for you. It'll just help you follow along with where we're at in the text, and you can bring that back with you if you like, and you can put notes in there. Now, last week I said that over the course of the next several weeks uh, and, and the past several weeks, that what we've been seeing in John's gospel is a series of interactions that Jesus is, is having. And these, these various interactions are going to be revealing to us uh, something that is true about Jesus and his character or something that is true of the people that are kind of engaging Jesus and what, what they need from their king. Um, uh, so the first one that we saw about three weeks ago is we looked at the story of, of Nicodemus and we saw that Nicodemus comes in the night to meet with Jesus and Jesus unveils himself to this religious leader. He's well-respected amongst the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's knowledgeable. He's educated. He knows the scriptures And Jesus, as he's talking with him, says to him, you have all of these things, and yet there's something you need more than all of that. And he says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus struggles with this. He can't seem to fathom what this means. He's thinking very naturally in his mind. And he even responds to Jesus and says, does this mean I have to climb back up into my mother's womb? Because that's impossible at this point. And what he's missing is that Jesus is ultimately unveiling to him, hey, the long awaited and promised Messiah has arrived. And you who know the scriptures should know better than anyone else that what God is going to do and as he's promised from his scriptures is far greater than just the political Messiah that our nation is currently looking for. He's ultimately saying to Nicodemus, I am greater than religion. I'm far greater than the rules and the traditions that you've passed down at this point to follow God. Follow me instead. Be born again unto God and truly live for the first time. Then last week, even though Jesus himself wasn't interacting in the story, John the Baptist is, and we saw John's disciples struggling with the growing popularity and reach of Jesus's ministry in the same region. And we see John engage his disciples and say, guys, Jesus is far greater than celebrity or success or fame or power that his ministry is one that will truly 
cleanse us of our sin more than the ceremonial baptism of repentance that we are experiencing in the wilderness. He is worth laying our lives down for. And then John goes so far as to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And as we see in these two interactions so far, a consistent theme that John is trying to kind of lay out for us as we process through these different responses to Jesus and his ministry as it begins is Jesus is far greater than anything the people of God had ever dreamed that he would be. And he's far better than anything we even today could imagine. Our text this morning is the story of the Samaritan woman. It's one of the longest interactions that Jesus has in all of the Bible. It's probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous stories in all of scripture. Many people would be familiar with this story, even if they were not a follower of Jesus. And it's a beautiful story. There's a reason for it. And one of the things I wanna point out to us from the text that Tanusha just read for us is I want you to Put the story of Nicodemus up against the story that we read this morning with the Samaritan woman. Here you have this woman in Samaria. She's everything that Nicodemus is not. And that's John's intention to help us to see that Jesus didn't just come for the religious elite of Israel, that he's come for everyone. See, she's uneducated. She's despised even amongst her own people who are a despised people amongst the nation of Israel. She has no influence. She's a follower of a false religion. And as we see in the story, she's likely an adulteress. And yet Jesus, instead of tearing her down, yelling at her and condemning her, instead meets her and offers himself to her so that she might truly worship God for the first time. He engages her. And what I want us to see this morning, because it's so often lost as we read this interaction, we, we can get lost in the, the cultural milieu of what's going on here. We can get lost in what's being said. But what Jesus really does here is he engages her heart and drives directly to the greatest need she has to be loved, accepted, and forgiven. And friends, I don't know where you are this morning as you come in here. Maybe you're weary and it's been a long week and and things are difficult, or maybe you're riding high and had a wonderful week. But as Jesus engages this woman in the text this morning, I promise you that the very thing he's doing for her, he promises to each and every person in this room this morning. He offers himself to her as the greater lover of her heart who will not fail. John, by sharing this story with us amongst probably hundreds or maybe even thousands that he could have shared throughout his gospel, wants us to see one major thing. So I've only got one point this morning. Jesus is greater than anything else this world has to offer us. 
He's the only one who can truly satisfy. He's the greater hope and satisfier of the human heart. If you wouldn't mind bowing for a moment of prayer before we dive into the text. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to gather together as your children to unpack and learn from your word. God, thank you that you have not only revealed yourself to us through it, but you have preserved it for us for thousands of years so that we might know who you are and worship you as Jesus says, even in this passage, in spirit and truth. So Lord, will you allow the words from my mouth to point to you? Lord, and may our hearts be ignited in worship to make much of you and to serve you, Jesus, our King. And I ask this all in his precious name. Amen. So Tanusha read the whole passage for us this morning, so I'm not going to reread it for us, but I am going to kind of point out some key moments as we plow through these 30 verses this morning. And for those of you guys that have been here a while, I promise we will get through all 30, but you may be here till about three o'clock. So some context for the story that we see here this morning is given to us in the first six verses. So John chapter four, verses one through six, just kind of give us some context for the story of Jesus and this woman at the well. So in, in verse one, you see that as John's disciples had responded to Jesus's ministry kind of negatively and were wondering what's going on as his ministry influence grew, the Pharisees start sniffing around. And anytime the Pharisees start sniffing around Jesus's ministry, he's not really interested in hanging around. There's multiple reasons for that. Uh, they don't understand the purpose of his ministry. They tend to create division and strife and cause issues and arguments with things that are going on there. And most of the time, you know, Jesus has this strategy of dealing with difficult people of just leaving. You know, instead of arguing and he, he, he follows the advice of Proverbs well to answer not a fool according to his folly. And so he's just like, you know what? I've, I'm doing some ministry out here. There's people coming. These guys are looking for a political insurrectionist. I'm not interested in, you know, Nicodemus was enough trouble. I'm not interested in dealing with a whole band of them. I'm out. And so it says that he leaves this rural region of Judea and he heads into Galilee, which is going to be in the northern part of Israel or the northern part of the Holy Land. And I want to read verse four to you because John's actually sharing a lot with us in verse four that we may not comprehend. He says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, what I think it's fascinating there because the reality is, is Jesus didn't have to do anything. The reality is, is Samaria didn't have a great reputation with Israel. Uh, and I'll, I'll share a little bit more with you on that in just a moment. But passing through Samaria was in fact the fastest way to get to Galilee where Jesus was trying to go. But because Jews and Samaritans didn't get along very well, there was a way that some would even take to go around Samaria so they didn't have to pass through it. And depending, depending on how racist you were as an Israelite, you might do that. You would go out, you would head east, you would cross the Jordan River, you would go north, east of the Jordan, and then you'd cross back over to head into Galilee just so you didn't have to go through Samaria. It's kind of like some of you guys who I know want to take the bypass around Tallahassee if you're going up 
to, you're heading north and going west. It's like, I mm, can't enter through that land, right? They're wrong. There we go. At least some people own it, right? And see, Samaria is politically a part of Israel, but by the, the historical nature of the Jewish people and in Israel at this time, they're actually hated maybe even more so than the Gentiles by the Jews during this time. And you got to go all the way back to 2 Kings to understand the history and the story of why this is. If you have time, write this down, go back and read it this week as you're processing through God's work, but go read chapters 17 and 18 of 2 Kings this week. And what you're going to realize is that post-exile in Israel, the Assyrians came in and they exiled a bunch of Jews in northern Israel, which was called Samaria at that time, and they brought in a bunch of Assyrians. And what happened was, is they began to intermarry, that the children of the of these people were actually children, as, as the Jews viewed it, of political rebels. Then what happened is what's called syncretism, which is where different religions were kind of starting to be mixed together and brought together. And so these people started worshiping other gods or doing other religious practices along with following Yahweh. And so they end up not being true worshipers of God, according to the Israelites. And then ultimately this kind of gets summed up in a massive religious fight between these two groups where the Samaritans end up saying, well, we're holier than you. We only recognize the first five books of the Bible, whereas you recognize all these other Old Testament books like the prophet and, and whatever else, but we just recognize the Pentateuch. And then we also think that you guys have totally, totally lied about where we're supposed to worship God. We're gonna worship God on Mount Gerizim up here in Northern Israel. You guys are wrong building the temple in Jerusalem. Now, as you can imagine, Israel's not a fan of that. Like, hey, we built this huge temple. Our, our King David had done this for us. How dare you try to go back and whitewash and erase a bunch of what God has done through our people. And so Jesus is heading through Samaria and it says he arrives at this city called Sychar. And this is the location of Jacob's well. It is a famous landmark. I've been told that if you go and visit the Holy Land, you could actually visit this place that it still exists today. And this place supplied water to the city of Sychar for thousands of years and was the center of town life. You know, you got to remember that, that this is an arid climate. And so access to water is a lifeline for the people. And so Jesus' people and his disciples stop. He sends his disciples into town to get food, but he stays at the well because it says he's exhausted. Now, what you need to understand about the well in Jewish culture and in this area of the world, it was, it was often a meeting place for the town. So people would come out, they would gather water together, they'd work together, they would gossip, they would get to know one another. And one of the really, really cool things is that wedding proposals or betrothals would often happen here. Think back to Genesis chapter 24, when Isaac is married to Rebecca, when Abraham sends one of his servants to go find a wife for Isaac, where does that servant find Rebecca? At the well, 
right there. She's watering the flocks and he sees her. I was like, whoa, yep, bringing her back. Then a couple chapters later in Genesis 29, guess where Jacob sees Rachel long before Laban messes everything up and has him marry two women. Where does he see her? At the well, right? Both times. So I want you to put this in the back of your mind that this was something that was commonplace, right? In ancient Israel, that this was a place where betrothals would take place in light of what we're going to see Jesus as he interacts with this Samaritan woman. And so Jesus arrives, he stops, his disciples head into a town, into town. And I love this part. It just says Jesus was exhausted, right? This is not my sermon, but just give me 10 seconds here. Some of y'all need to rest. If the God of the universe needed to rest, you might need to, right? And I know how I am. I, mean, I had anxiety as a kid. And so I tend to move around like this. I mean, I had ADHD. My parents just let me kind of figure it out. And so I drive my wife crazy. I'll be doing this stuff, you know, all the time. I get it. God designed us to need rest. And resting is not a weakness as our culture might push it but it actually shows dependence on God. You know, in the six, seven, eight hours of sleep you get every night, the universe is moving just fine without you because you're not the holder and the sustainer of the universe. God is. And so Jesus stops by the well, he rests, and then starts this beautiful exchange with this Samaritan woman. Starting in verse seven, the Samaritan woman walks up at noon. That's key. This would be the heat of the day. And she shows up to draw water, which is a pretty difficult task midday. And there's a reason for that. We'll get to that in just a minute. But she walks up to draw water and Jesus looks at her and says, give me a drink. What we need to understand is that by simply speaking to her and asking her to draw him water, Jesus is crossing racial, religious, and historic segregation. Here, here she is a woman. Oftentimes it was inappropriate for Jewish men to engage other women without the permission of their fathers. She's a Samaritan. She's a part of the unclean religious rebels who are denying God and his word and not worshiping him properly. She's the town adulteress as we'll see later. And this is why she's there at noon. She likely was so tired of being looked at and treated with contempt that her shame led her to go out at midday to draw water instead of going early in the morning or late in the evening when the other women and, and men of the town would go to draw water. And then lastly, it was known amongst Jewish society that if you shared utensils with a Samaritan, you became unclean. And so to ask her to draw water for him and then to use her jug would have made Jesus unclean according to purification rituals at the time in Israel. And Jesus does not care. He engages her and talks to her anyway. And I want, to note, I want you to note two things. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, here's something I want you to understand no matter what you've experienced from Christians or the church in your past. Jesus will meet you where you're at. He does not care. He did not leave the throne room of heaven 
put on human flesh, live and die so that you might have to clean yourself up and pick yourself up by your bootstraps to come meet him. No, he comes to you where you are at. Now, the hope of the gospel is that you won't stay that way, that if you come to Christ, you will be transformed by the Holy Spirit. But he will meet you where you are at, no matter how low you think you might are, no matter where you might be, he will meet you there. And for those of us in the room that are believers, Jesus is giving us a master class on evangelism. You know, so often we allow ourselves to get sidetracked by arguments or, or things or the, the behavior of the, of the person that we're engaging that we may find repulsive. And Jesus is teaching us, throw all that out the window. Just love and share the good news. Look at, look at verse nine with me, because as Jesus asks her for water, she's immediately skeptical. And if you think about her situation, there are plenty of reasons for that. But look at what she says. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that part in parentheses there is put in there by John to help those that didn't understand Jewish and Samaritan politics, what's going on. She's immediately skeptical. She kind of looks at him, and she's like, what's your deal? Like, I'm here at noon. You're not even supposed to be here. Like, no one else is out here at noon when I come out here most days. What are you doing out here? And you have the audacity to talk to me? Like, what are you after? Right, see, this woman's used to being used and treated and abused poorly. And so her immediate assumption is that this man's gonna do the same. And Jesus goes straight to the heart of the woman. He says, forget about the male, female, or Jew, Samaritan thing. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. He doesn't get into Jewish and Samaritan politics or the idea of men and women not being allowed to speak to each other. No, he just says, look, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be worried about any of that. You would ask me for living water. And by saying this, Jesus is both culturally and spiritually engaging her at this point. Culturally, he knows that this is an arid climate and there's a need for water. And so by him saying that he can offer her living water, he's saying, hey, look, I can offer you something you are gonna need for the rest of your life living here. But religiously, he's actually referring back to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. Right? The prophet Zechariah says this, talking about the coming day of the Lord. He says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So here you have Jesus giving an illustration that the coming day of the Lord has arrived because of his arrival on the planet. That God is finally answering this prophetic word that he had promised to Israel from the prophet Zechariah, that a, a water is coming that will cleanse, bring life and provide for God's people. 
He's giving her an invitation just like he did to Nicodemus to come and follow him. To depend on him. And not surprisingly, back in John chapter four now, she doesn't buy it. You know, she's, she, she, she hears this from him and she's like, God, what are you talking about, man? Like this well's a hundred feet deep and it's served us for years. Our great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob built this well for us so that we would have water. And then he, she asks a very fair question to him. She says, are you greater than Jacob, our father? Like, how dare you present yourself as someone that can provide living water when our father Jacob provided this for us? Who, who are you to think that you could provide a well that's better than this well that stood here for thousands of years and served this city? You talk a big game, you're not better than our father. See, she's used to men offering a lot of promises and not following through. And here's the thing though. She's finally encountered somebody who is greater than her father, Jacob. One to whom Jacob even longed for his arrival. And Jesus could have immediately dove into messianic prophecies and corrected her and yelled at her and, you know, cleansed the temple, so to speak. Instead, he just patiently corrects her. Because here's the thing. See, Jesus understands that there's a reason why as he promises living water to her that she doesn't understand the reference. See, Samaritans rejected the prophetic books. So she has no frame of reference for understanding what Jesus is even talking about here from Zechariah chapter 14. Jesus is using a messianic prophecy from one of the prophets and yet she grew up in a culture and a people that didn't accept those books to be the word of God. And therefore, how could she know what Jesus is referencing? And so Jesus just patiently instead teaches her and corrects her. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, hey, look, this water is external. It's from the ground. You draw it up. The water I give is internal and it will well up like a spring, like the spring that is in the ground below this well. The water that I give quenches thirst internally forever. In a couple of chapters in John chapter seven, if you want to turn over there with me, Jesus expands on this idea starting in verse 37. He says, on the last day of the feast, the, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified, right? John teaches us there what Jesus is saying that all who come to him by repentance and faith will be given the Holy Spirit. And with that internally will well up springs leading to eternal life where our thirst will always be quenched by our God. 
Jesus is ultimately saying to this woman, the water I offer is better than water that comes from the well. It's better than Aquafina or whatever fancy water you like to get at the convenience store. Now Jesus is saying, there's something that needs to be quenched that's far more than the dry tongue you have. Far greater than the dehydration you might receive. And by the way, this is not to downplay dehydration. It's a serious thing. But Jesus is saying, you think dehydration's bad? Your soul's dehydrated. The very reason for your existence is thirsty and must be quenched by God. And this woman, she hears this and she's still in the natural plane. She, she like Nicodemus, can't get what Jesus is saying and connect it here. It's like all down underneath the ground. She's like, well, hold on. You mean I don't have to come out to the well anymore? Well, I want that, sign me up. And so many of us come to Jesus wanting something that satisfies an external thing and Jesus is offering something far greater than that. You know, we think we can come to Jesus and we'll get the relationship we want or we think we can come to Jesus and people might think better of us so that we'll have our guilty shame assuaged from us or as some even teach, depending on what kind of background you grew up in, that as long as you follow Jesus, you'll have all you ever want and you'll never experience suffering or pain. And Jesus is like, I'm so much better than that. How could you reduce me down to something like that? So she says, hey, I want that. I want, I want that well. I don't, want to, I don't want to have to come draw water here anymore. If you really are better than Jacob, I want it. And Jesus still, in his love and his grace and his mercy towards her, knows she still is not connecting yet. Instead of yelling at her and correcting her and going into apologetics mode to prove that Zechariah was really a prophet, look at what he does. No, he's, he's going to probe. He's going to teach her, hey, this water satisfies something deeper than thirst. And again, when I told us earlier that for those of us in the room that were followers of Jesus this morning, that he's going to put on a master class on evangelism, this is what he does. He doesn't worry about the apologetics he goes straight to the heart. He goes to the question behind the question. Look what he says, starting in verse 16. You see, she doesn't fully understand. She doesn't fully comprehend what he's offering. And so he teaches her. And he asks her, he says, go. Go call your husband. I want to meet him. Bring him out here. I'll, I'll wait. Now, does anybody find this a, an odd question? It's kind of out of place makes no sense unless you're the God of the universe and already know this woman intimately more than she knows herself. So it's kind of an odd question. Makes no sense that he would ask this question in light of their exchange up to this point. And you got to remember, remember what I said earlier about wedding betrothals happening at the well? This woman might even be thinking, is this guy going to propose? What's going on here? And as we'll see, he's asking this because he knows her. And through this question, he's going to engage her heart and expose her idols. And this is going to lead him to be able to show to her this isn't just about thirst for your tongue. 
No, he's here to quench her thirsty heart that she doesn't even know needs to be quenched. And she answers him for the first time, probably like honestly, or at least partially honest. She says, I have no husband, which at this time was in fact true. And Jesus responds to her and says, actually true, but you didn't share the second half that you've had five husbands and that you're living with a guy right now who's not your husband. And I know that that may not seem as shocking to us in 2023 American culture. It might give us a little bit of, ooh, that's a lot. Like, wow, I mean, gosh. I can assure you culturally at this time, this was like as dirty and as unclean as you could be in society. To, to be married that many times and to be living out of wedlock with a man who's not your husband. And she's likely at the well drawing water for the two of them trying to not be noticed because of the shame she's carrying from her life. And yet Jesus lovingly engages her heart by asking this question. Guys, if you can't see this, listen. Jesus is saying to her, you've been looking for love all your life. How many men have you given yourself to looking for acceptance and love and satisfaction? And just like this well, you keep coming back to it. Husband one, husband two, back to the well. Husband three, back to the well again. Husband four, still thirsty, back to the well again. Husband five. Still thirsty, living out of wedlock with this guy. Man after man after man, still thirsty. Jesus is saying to her, I'm asking this question not because I really want to meet this guy, because I'm telling you the water I offer you is going to satisfy that longing. That one that has led you to the shame and heartache you're currently experiencing. Friends, there is great hope here. I don't need to see a show of hands, but how many of you have ever made a mess of a relationship? Yeah. And the invitation that Jesus gives this woman is the same invitation he gives to each and every one of us is to come to him and in him, our thirsty soul will be satisfied for the first time. And once that thirsty soul is satisfied by something that can actually quench it, unlike the things we run after here on earth, that proper healing and perspective can be brought to future relationships. See, Jesus is ultimately inviting her, come see me and for the first time, truly worship God and be satisfied. You know, if we understand anything about what God was doing in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, one of the things we understand that is God created Adam and Eve and made them in his image and likeness to work the the garden and to have dominion over it that 
As God's image bearers, human beings have a unique role and position that simply by existing, you are called to reflect the character and nature of the creator. And in that, bring worship to him. And one of the reasons why Paul even says back in Romans chapter one, that human beings for generations have exchanged the glory of God for a lie to worship creation rather than creator. That's ultimately what we end up doing. This woman, the way hers has manifested is her longing for love and worship of God, of God has manifested itself in a way that she worships men and follows after them and goes back to the well again and again. But we do this in so many other ways, whether it be with money or sex or relationships or jobs or power. We run after things that are created. And when we're not satisfied, we become angrier and angrier, sometimes even with that anger pointed at God. And as this woman likely is even angry and frustrated by her plot in life, Jesus lovingly invites her, come and I will give you springs of living water. Now her response is, it finally clicks when he asks this question. He doesn't share any apologetics. He just engages her. And look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, you need to understand what she's saying as a Samaritan woman. She's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 34, where Moses dies. And for them, that's like the end of the prophets. She was waiting for the prophet to be raised up post Moses. And she wasn't interested in Zechariah or Malachi or Micah or Habakkuk or Isaiah or Ezekiel. Those aren't on her radar. So when she calls him a prophet, she's like, hold on, well, hold on here. We got someone like Moses in our midst. She's like, I, I perceive this about you. And, and again, she does what people often do when their idols start to be exposed to them. She doesn't engage with the idol just yet. Look at what she does. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, right? She runs back to a religious detail and difference between Jews and Samaritans. So she's like, okay, hold on, hold on. I see that maybe you're this, the, the prophet. You're this guy that, that comes after Moses. Tell me who's got it right. Were we right or, or are the Jews right? And Jesus, you still don't get it. Let me teach you, what I'm offering to you is true worship and it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Samaritan, right? In verse 21, he says, worship is not about a location, but a person, the father. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Samaritan, doesn't matter what mountain you're on, a day is coming where it's not gonna matter. I'm here to offer you true worship that's not connected to a place, but a person. He says in verse 22 that worship is rooted in truth as revealed by God. So he's like, yeah, the Samaritans have got some things wrong, but it doesn't matter. Because as we'll see throughout the gospel of John, the Jews get plenty of things wrong too. He 
says, we go back to the word of God to be told what to do, not the tradition of man, not the tradition of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Samaritan leaders. We go back to God and his word as he's revealed himself to us. And we worship him for how he has revealed himself to us. And then this third point he makes in verse 24, he says to her, I am offering you the opportunity to worship in spirit and in truth. And it's kind of easy, easy to, to just glaze or glance over this part and just move on. But here's what Jesus is really saying. He says, true worship is defined by being from the heart, internal, spirit. He's saying to her, woman, a, a time is coming. When he uses that term woman, he's not using that derogatorily. He's, it's like saying ma'am in the South. So whenever you see that, whenever you see Jesus doing that in the scripture, it's not some, you know, gender war. He's saying, ma'am, he says, ma'am, listen up. True worship is not defined by the space or the how. It's defined internally in the heart posture towards your God. One of humility and dependence. And then he says it's in truth. And that's going to be through him. That true worship is going to be defined through the work and faith that we have in Jesus Christ. His finished work in his life, death, burial, and resurrection and our response in repentance and faith. The invitation to living water is not some physical need being met for her so she doesn't have to come out to the well anymore. It's not even to decide who is right and wrong racially. It's to invite the human race to fully know and worship God, our creator. To have our very thirst for existence quenched. And I, I love the response here. Right? Jesus says in verse 23, the father is seeking such people to worship him. That's why I'm here. To restore what went wrong in Genesis. I'm here to fix all of it. Come to the father because God is seeking unlikely converts like Nicodemus and like the Samaritan woman. The religious and the irreligious. God is drawing a people to himself who are humble, repentant, needy, and ultimately love Jesus. And she responds spectacularly. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So here she is looking forward to the Messiah. Someone that her people may not have even fully believed was going to come. And Jesus does something that he doesn't normally do. He responds to her and says, I who speak to you am he. He fully reveals himself to her as God's son who would come and die in her place for the forgiveness of sins and rise again to offer her new life and to give her the living water of the Holy Spirit. And so right after this, Jesus reveals himself. And right after this, right, the disciples come back, they're floored. They're like, what is going on here? Like, what is, and they're, they're just floored enough to be weirded out by the situation, but just cowardly enough not to say anything. 
Like, what is Jesus doing? But the woman runs and leaves her jar there. Like, that's not an accident. Look at verse 28. John shares this for a reason. He says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The very reason she came to the well, she left there. She didn't care how thirsty she was anymore. Her soul had finally been quenched for the first time. The love and longing and belonging that she had so desperately wanted all of her life has finally been realized in meeting Jesus of Nazareth. She leaves the jar there. She runs. She's like, Come see this guy I met at the well, talking to the very people that she was afraid to talk to. She's gone from adulteress to evangelist in like 10 minutes. And the town who views this woman as a pariah and doesn't want to have any dealings with her, guess what? They start coming out. God uses her and her story. John shares this interaction with us to invite all who read to the same thing that the Samaritan woman was offered. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. Truly see him. Come to him and be satisfied. Forgiven loved, adopted. Come experience the living water of the Holy Spirit and be quenched for the first time. We all look to so many things to satisfy us in this life. For the Samaritan woman, it was men and relationships, but that doesn't have to be your story to be looking for things to satisfy the longing of your heart. be money. It could be fame and celebrity like John's disciples. It could be religion and control like Nicodemus. It could be relationships and security like the woman at the well. It's an endless list of things that our hearts will run to to worship and find satisfaction in and all will be found wanting you will thirst again if you run to anything other than Jesus. Only Jesus will satisfy the longing of your heart because in him we find purpose, belonging, love, and forgiveness.